Our reading today comes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all of those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, good to be with you. Let me join Caitlin and Peter and Bridget and just welcoming you this morning, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person. Uh, it's really good to gather with you this morning. Well, yesterday, uh, my wife, Amanda, was in the midst of double-checking all the gifts to make sure we had them all. And I was sitting reading in the other room, and she remarked, she said, we, we are still waiting for a few gifts to come. And, you know, in a world of Amazon two-day shipping, we began to realize it had been since November, Thanksgiving, that she'd ordered these gifts, which, I mean, let's be honest, it's hard for us to wait. But that's really the theme of this series. What are you waiting for? And, you know, we remarked a few weeks ago, all of us are waiting. You know, kids, this morning, I guarantee you, you are very close to opening those gifts underneath the tree, and the next six days are going to go by so slowly, right? So slow. Like, how could Tuesday last that long, right? Can Saturday please come? Well, how about the grown-up kids here? Some of you, you're waiting for that promotion. Some of you are waiting for a new job to open up some of you are waiting for new hires to come in to lighten your current load. Uh, others of us, we're waiting for that special someone. Others of us, we're, we've been longing to have children, and yet even after trying, we're still waiting. And then some of us, we're just waiting for the kids we have to hit like the next phase, Right? Like, could we just get a little bit more sleep? I thought by now we'd have that one down. All, all of us are waiting. Well, as we continue in this Advent series, what are you waiting for? A few weeks back, we began this journey looking at the book of Isaiah. And we're focused here because Isaiah is known as the waiting prophet. And in Isaiah, here's the deal. Whether you're religious or non-religious, there are these visions that Isaiah gives of a world that all of us are waiting for. A couple weeks ago, we saw this, this vision of a world of peace. Last week, we saw this vision of a God of compassion. And today, we look at justice. And let me just say this, let's be honest that you would have to be living underneath a rock to not have seen and felt the groaning in the midst of our world that is waiting and longing for justice. 
So we're going to say three things today. We're going to see why justice matters. Secondly, we're going to see what justice is. And then thirdly, we're going to see two ways God's justice ought to change us. So let me pray, and we'll get in. Father, just pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, why justice matters. Now look, look with me at verse 1 again. This is how Isaiah opens the vision. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Um, this opens... Isaiah's vision does, and it's a vision of a servant who is empowered by God's Spirit to bring about a world of justice. And we see it here. We see those that are bound and brokenhearted to have liberty proclaimed to them, those who are in prison to be released. And it's really interesting. This is not actually a one-off in Isaiah. This is actually a theme throughout the book of Isaiah. So, for example, in the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, this is how Isaiah remarks, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So just for a moment, let's reflect, because this is important. This theme throughout Isaiah is of a spirit-empowered servant that God's going to empower to bring about a just world. And this is why justice matters, because it matters to God. It matters to God. What we see throughout Isaiah is that God cares so much about it that he's actually going to empower a servant to bring it about. You know, uh, if you ever watched The Office, um, you know, one of my favorite characters on there is Bob Vance, um, Phyllis's boyfriend who later she marries. And the reason why that's such a funny thing about Bob Vance is every time he's introduced, it's, it's always Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. Do you guys remember that? It's like, you know, it's like three times in a row, Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, Bob Vance. Like you can't know Bob Vance unless you know he does refrigeration. One of the things that's so unique about the God of Scripture is how often he introduces himself, like he does in Psalm 68, verse 5. This is how he introduces himself. He's this, he's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Why is God identifying with those kinds of people? Notice, he's not cozying himself up to the elite, to those in power. He's identifying those who are in positions that are weak and vulnerable 
particularly the fatherless and the widow in a patriarchal society. They didn't have a voice. They didn't have power. They were easily pushed aside. And yet the God of Scripture identifies with them. That's his, you could say, calling card. So let me speak directly this morning to Christians, to Redeemer City. The reason why justice ought to matter to you and to me is because it matters to God. That's what we see throughout the Scriptures. It matters to God. And we see at the beginning of Isaiah 61 that He's going to empower a servant to bring it about. But secondly, what, what is justice? And we actually see this in verse 2. Look at what it says. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. There are two parts in this verse to justice. And the first is negative. It's it, when we see the, the day of vengeance for our God. In other words, there's a righting of wrongs. Uh, there is a day coming in which God is going to right all wrongs. It means when something that is done wrong, it means to bear a penalty. It means to bring about that which is right. And some might view this, this final day, this day of vengeance, is kind of like, well, that's a judgy God. But if you've ever had someone take advantage of you, if you've ever been in a position in which you couldn't do anything about it, you know what that's like. You know what you long for. You know you want someone to say, that's not right. You know there's a longing in you. You can't get rid of it. There's a longing for justice. And Isaiah 61 says, actually, that day is coming because there is a God of justice. But secondly, there's a positive. When it says, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, it's a reference back to Leviticus to the year of Jubilee. There were Seven years after, excuse me, every seven years, debts would be forgiven. Uh, indentured slaves would be set free. But on the seventh, seventh year, it was called the year of Jubilee. And on that time, all of the property that had been inherited in the promised land with Israel would go back to its original owner. It was this massive reset button. So that those who were oppressed or weak or vulnerable had little because of maybe sin or suffering that had come upon them could be lifted up. Justice means, as Keller puts it, to give people their due. Now, let me just make a couple observations about our present moment. And I'm drawing from an article by Keller and he makes this point that there have been, in our day, there have never been stronger calls for justice. But he makes the point, the question is, which justice? There are competing visions of what justice is in our world. In other words, just because somebody says justice doesn't mean you're saying the same thing. And Keller remarks this, he says this, in the scriptures we have a rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. 
And he says this biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the other secular alternatives without ignoring any of the concerns. I find that so compelling. The fact that in the scriptures, we have a rich, strong, complex understanding of justice. It's robust. It's not weak. It's not small. It's not fickle. Like the scriptures, it is rich and it is robust. And he makes this point. He he writes this caution. Many well-meaning Christians have taken in secular views of justice, which introduces distortion into their lives. And here's, here's where this needs to challenge us as a community. Uh, on the one hand, if justice matters to God, if it really matters to God, then the church ought to be, ought to be one of the loudest voices as it relates to justice in our world. It ought to be. If this is God's calling card, if this is, what he, if this is who he identifies with, then the church ought to be one of the loudest voices talking about justice. Because we, we worship a God who's at work for it. And yet, the church ought to be so deeply saturated with the rich, complex, biblical understanding of justice that it's able to engage the world with its wisdom and not the folly of the world. It's not an either-or. It's a radical both-and. Let me say two things. We need to listen to the voices and issues around us that, affects, that affect the marginalized, the immigrant, the unborn, racism. We can't dismiss those voices. But we also need a healthy intake of the scriptures so that we understand the rich, robust view of, of justice and not adopt a secular version of it. Isaiah, as he opens up this vision of a world of justice, shows us that God, it matters to God. He's working for it. And he even tells us what it is. But thirdly, two ways God's justice ought to change us. And the first is this. It's got to wound you before it heals you. What's, um, what's really remarkable about this is 600 years after this was written, Jesus walks into his hometown of Nazareth. It's the launch of his public ministry. It's like a presidential inauguration. It's the moment Jesus is going to get up and say, this is what I'm about. These are my priorities. And so he gets up in Nazareth and he picks up Isaiah. And guess where he begins to read? Right here. He reads this passage. But after he gets done, in Luke 4.21, this is what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
I mean, this is Jesus' drop the mic moment, right? Like, if there's ever a drop the mic, guess what, guys? Like, it just got fulfilled, this passage. Jesus is saying, I am the Spirit-empowered servant who has come about to bring a just world. Now, I don't know about you, but like, if I'm in my hometown and I bring that message and it, like, I would hope, like, you know, like, get on your shoulders, like, let's go. Do you know what they did? Later on, as they're talking, Jesus began to get into a little bit of trouble. He began to quote how God went outside Israel at various times to help people like a Phoenician widow and a Syrian leper. I mean, these were the bad guys. These were the enemies of Israel. And now, Jesus is telling them that there were times where God actually went and helped God's people's enemies and didn't help them. In Luke 4, 28-29, this is how they respond to Jesus. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. What's happening there? Why are they so offended? One commenter put it this way, Jesus was telling his hometown, you think they are the problem. You think they are bad. Guess what? You're worse. Listen, we may not have a problem with a Phoenician widow or a Syrian leper, but let me for a moment maybe offend you with what Jesus might say to us today. David Martin was commenting on how those in most metropolitan areas, places like Madison, view evil. And this is what he said. Evil tends to be seen as exogenous, outside factors, brought in by society, history, patriarchy, capitalism, the system in one form or another. In other words, what David Martin is saying, in our context... The problem is out there. It's that system. It's those people. And listen, I'm not denying that there are not systemic issues. I'm not denying that today. But here's the issue. In our day, we have a great awareness of collective sin. But we have a very little awareness of our own personal sin. We have no problem with being outraged at the injustice around us, but oftentimes it's true that we wink at our own sin. In Jesus, in his hometown, was wounding them with these messages, but he had to wound them if they were going to be healed. When Jesus said, and Isaiah 61, to proclaim good news to the poor. Do you see yourself as poor? You know, Daryl Bach points out in his commentary, broadly speaking, the poor and loose gospel 
refer to those who are open to God. And oftentimes, those in material deprivation often are more aware of their spiritual need and are oftentimes more responsive. It means unless Jesus wounds you, unless he shows you how messed up you are, you won't be healed. But, but listen for a moment. Jesus is not, he's not wounding us or pointing the finger at any of us in order to just shame us. It, there, is a, there is a healing that he longs to bring. You know, one of, the, one of the unique things about Luke 4 is that Jesus, he stops right, right in the middle of verse 2. He stops to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't go any further. He doesn't say, and the day of vengeance for our God. He stops right before that. Well, why is that? Why did he stop there? Why didn't he go on to talk about God's vengeance? And here's how the rest of the story goes. You see, Israel's prophets, they longed for that day in which God would finally and forever bring about judgment on God's enemies. And the truth is, as you read Luke's gospel, what happens? Jesus comes to bear the just judgment of God's enemies in order that he might have mercy on them. That's why he stops right there. He came the first time to bear judgment, and he will come again to bring judgment. And this is where we find ourselves. Have you been wounded by this Jesus? Do you see your need? Do you see that the greater problem is not out there, but it's actually in each one of our lives? Until you do, you will not be healed. You know, verse 3 talks about this, 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 instead of ashes, a beautiful headdress. Instead of mourning, oil of gladness. In verse 10, later on, it talks about being clothed with garments of salvation, to be clothed in a robe of righteousness. It's this notion that in Christ, because he took the punishment, we are no longer condemned, but robed in another person's work. You see, listen for a moment. This is how God moves in to heal a broken and sinful world of which you and I are a part. We cannot isolate ourselves and say that problem is out there. It's all of us. But here's the beautiful part. This is how the healing happens. See, when you're robed in righteousness, another performance, not your own, guess what that enables you to do? It heals shame. You don't have to defend yourself anymore. It means you can deal honestly with who I am and who you are. You, you don't have to put up defenses because you're already loved. It heals pride, right? The notion that we're better than so-and-so because the cross humbles everybody. It creates a humble people and yet a confident people because it's not based on our work. It's based on this one who's been sent. 
Have you been wounded? Have you been healed by this one? Then the second thing, if he's delivered you, he plants you. Now look at verse, the, the middle of verse 3 to verse 4. It says this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They, will, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many cities. You know, the whole passage of Isaiah 61 has this image of those who are brokenhearted, those who have been captive, those who are mourning, and now through the work of the servant are comforted and they are freed, and now they are planted in the world as oaks of righteousness. What a beautiful picture. An oak of righteousness. Let's think about this for a moment. What does that mean, oak of righteousness? Oftentimes we think about righteousness, we think about right or wrong. We think in terms of potentially personal morality. People who do what's right. And there are plenty of passages that speak about morality and sexuality and family and all those different things. And it sounds very politically conservative. But here, this righteousness actually sounds a little bit liberal. And I, I bring that up because I'll just say it this way. You cannot bring your political ideologies to the, to the Bible. They will not fit. They're much more robust than that, as one pastor would put it. You see, righteousness is not merely personal morality, it's social. So in Proverbs 11.10, this is one of them. It says this, when the, city, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And this is the picture the reason the city rejoices is because the righteous are those who take their status, their position, their resources, and they leverage it for the good of the community around them. That's who the righteous are in the book of Proverbs. Bruce Walkey, one of my professors, summarized it this way. Between the righteous and the wicked, he said this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Which is why in verse 4, what are the righteous doing? The oaks of righteousness. They're repairing walls. Things that are broken down in the city. You see, these oaks of righteousness, these are simply the communities who experience God coming down into their lives and seeing that in Christ He has disadvantaged Himself for you in order to advantage you. As 2 Corinthians 9 would say, He became poor that you might become rich. In other words, the Gospel, the Gospel actually calls us to be a community who do justice. Let me close here with two, two thoughts. First here, if you're not a Christian, let me just go back for a moment where we began. I'll just ask you this. If you're not a Christian, 
Why do you long for a just world? Why? What grounding? Like, if we are just lucky mud, if we're just here by chance, then that longing for a just world, I mean, quite honestly, it's just an illusion. It's your feelings. When you look out at the world and you say, that's not fair, why? But what the scripture would say, the reason why you have those longings, the reason why you have those feelings, is because it's a whisper that the God who made you, the God who made this world, was created by a good, benevolent, just God. And that this God who is just is merciful and has extended that through his Son to all who would return to him and trust in him. And Christian, if it's true that we've been released and freed through the gospel, that we are called to be oaks of righteousness, it would suggest, it would mean that we would be a people that would be meaningfully engaged in our local context, caring for our city, caring for our neighbors, aware of the needs around us, you know, individually, for some of us, it might mean befriending the single mother. For others, it might be a vocational aspiration that actually leverages that for the sake of the marginalized. For others, it might just be a bake sale to help, you know, the local domestic abuse place. Whatever it means, it means it calls us into action. Let me say collectively. Redeemer City our story is a unique one. We moved into this space a little under two years ago. And many of you weren't even here when we did that. But do you know why we landed here in this space, in this part of the city? Uh, it was because Fitchburg had identified this as one of the three neighborhoods that they were identifying as a healthy neighborhood initiative. In other words, these were certain neighborhoods in our city that lacked some resources. And our hope in moving to this part of the city and, you know, quite honestly, Casey and others renovating this space was so it could be a space not just to gather here on Sunday, but it would be a space that could be used by the community for the common good. And one of the most beautiful parts, like this last week on Wednesday, I was here a little after five. That's right, everybody. I worked till five, just so you know. I was here after five and I walk into the, the multi-purpose room out there and, um, there's Darian, uh, who's, um, who leads the Dear Diary program that helps mentor black girls. And there she is blowing up mattresses because the girls are doing a movie night that night. And um, so I talked to her briefly. And then the next day, I'm leaving, and Emily's, you know, our executive assistant, is doing a fantastic job. She's there with, you know, Levi, like one of the cutest kids in the world, and doing a tour of the building for one of the elementary schools that where a lot of the kids around here go because they want to find a space where they can do some things around here. Um, I think about Nicola. In our last family meeting, we, we identified Nicola as one of our, kind of our, our ministry team lead as it related to community partnerships. And one of the things I'm so encouraged is just, she just has a highly, if you know Nicola, I mean, she could like befriend a door. You know what I mean? Like she's just, she's amazing. Um, and so she's just, 
invested in continuing to build relationships with those community partners to help you know, basically deepen our relationship with them, identify ways that we can continue to partner with them and come alongside them. Well, why? It's all out of passages like this because we're grounded in the gospel. We want to be a community that serves this community well. And here's our ultimate desire, right? Like verse 3, it says that he may be glorified. We want to be a collective community that is formed by the gospel in such a way that we collectively offer our lives freely to the good of those around us in our community so that they might catch a glimpse and come to know a God who loves them like that. Let's pray. Let's pray. Um, Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son uh, to bear judgment for us. We're so grateful how you continue this work of healing us. And Lord, just pray in the midst of a time where there are competing visions of justice, would you by your spirit enable us to be a community that embraces your vision? Would you help us to be a community who is not apathetic, but is looking? Would we be a community that that knows you more and more of a God who identifies with the fatherless and the widow? That we'd be a community, not one compelled to create an identity to somehow be, quote-unquote, a good people, but rather resting in our identity that's found in and through your son, Jesus. And Lord, we do pray. We pray that you would take our lives collectively. We pray you take Redeemer City and you'd use it to be a light to this community, to Fitchburg, to Madison, to those down the block. So we lay it before you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.